today's episode of May the Record Reflect. The hierarchy of communication says that actions are the number one thing that get people's attention. So if I'm standing in front of you twisting my wedding ring, all of a sudden your eye is going to be drawn to that and away from what hopefully are really good words that are coming out of my mouth. Welcome to May the Record Reflect, the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Buckmelter, and joining me today to continue the conversation on communication we've been having here on the podcast is Carol Sowers. Carol was a professional broadcaster for over 30 years. She graduated from the Missouri School of Journalism, which is the foremost journalism school in the United States. She was vice president for public affairs at CBS ABC affiliate station KHQA and variously held the positions of reporter, producer, main anchor, executive producer, and executive news director. In the time since she left CBS, Carol has trained broadcast professionals, law enforcement organizations, and governmental agencies in poise, delivery, speaking without notes, using gestures, and voice control. She now teaches those same skills to trial lawyers as Anita Trainer. She teaches at our trial skills programs throughout the United States and in our teacher training program in which she trains our trainers. Her teaching overseas has taken her from Belfast and Vienna to Tanzania and Myanmar. Carol, a warm welcome to you today. Thank you for joining us on May the Record Reflect. Thank you. Happy to be here. That's great. We have a lot of ground to cover today in, in this episode, and I know it's going to be a really interesting talk with tons of great takeaways for everyone who's tuning in today. So I'm just going to just jump right in with my questions. In our trial skills programs, one of the first things that our faculty members impress upon attendees is that to be a truly great trial attorney, you're going to have to break up with your notes. You just have to give up that crutch. And I know that can be really challenging even when you're not at trial. And disclosure, I'm using my notes right now. But when you're teaching at our programs, you speak to this quite a bit. Do you have some tips that you can share with us today about how to build that muscle memory so that we can learn to speak more fluidly without using notes? I do. First of all, Marcy, I think there is a big difference between having notes and having your argument written out directly in front of you in sentence and paragraph form. I think it's perfectly acceptable to have notes as long as they are in bullet point form or in outline form. One word is good. Two words are fine. But in my own notes, I challenge myself to try to have no more than three words in a phrase. I feel like I can use those three words, and that's going to be enough to prompt me to keep myself on track, keep myself going. If you allow yourself to start expanding your notes, then you're going to go to them. You're going to start reading from them too much. And what happens is your head starts to fall down into your notes and the paper or legal pad in front of you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think the top of my head is a really effective communications tool. I think that we communicate so much more effectively with our eyes, with our faces. That's what we want to see. That's what gives energy and passion and emotion to our arguments or any other kind of speaking that we're doing. So less is more when it comes to notes. You also mentioned muscle memory. A lot of actors talk about building muscle memory because they want to know what the director expects from them in terms of movements on the stage or on the film set before they learn their lines because they want to learn everything all together. They want to be able to put it together so that they're making that mind and body connection, which is exactly what muscle memory is. So. As you're practicing your presentations for court or any other public speaking that you're going to be doing, think about where you want to stand, how you want to move, what gestures you want to use, 
and practice it all together because that muscle memory is going to help keep you on track as well. Using symbols and pictures in your notes is a great trick. I don't know why, but some people think that their notes have to be very pristine. It's not homework. Nobody's going to see it. You don't have to turn it in. So whatever works for you is what you should have in your notes. Symbols, pictures. I sometimes have strange arrows and mathematical symbols that make sense to me. A lot of people find that pictures, even if all you're doing is drawing a stick figure, something that is going to resonate with you when you glance down very quickly, sometimes we can catch more information with a picture or some kind of visual than actual words. So symbols and pictures are a great tool to use. So I'm really glad that you mentioned the necessity of being really well prepared and how it calms your nerves. Because I know that from my own experience in starting these podcasts, that the more prepared I am, the easier it is to just jump in and ad lib and, and pull these things off. I wish that I had some magic wand that I could wave when I'm working with people and say that there was some other way around it besides practice, but there really isn't. I also believe, though, Marcy, that the way you practice is important. I think that you want to get as close to the real life setting as possible. For instance, one of the best speakers I ever heard in my life was a minister in a church that I attended. And for years, Sunday after Sunday, week in and week out, he delivered incredibly dynamic, thought provoking messages. And one day I said to him, how do you do that week in and week out for decades? And he told me that he went to the church, stood in the pulpit and practiced 17 times, practiced Mm. sermon 17 times. Now, that sounds like a lot to most of us. (laughs) And I don't know that your magic number is the same as his, that it's 17. But I do know that nobody's magic number is zero. Unfortunately, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately, yeah, I think that a lot of times the first time that an attorney hears his or her oral argument out loud is when they deliver themselves in the courtroom. They don't take as much time to practice. I read my entire notes and my script and my intro, my outro, everything several times before I have these uh, podcasts and I do it with other writing that I do. I think that there is nothing to replace the really the editorial power that comes from reading your own words aloud and hearing where you get hung up what phrases work, where you should place the emphasis on particular words in each sentence, and how things are going to flow. There's just no substitute for having written things in advance, having your notes, and then reading them aloud. The difference is when we write, we write for the eye. But we should be writing for the ear. Yes. It's a completely different style of writing. And until you really think about that and start delving into it and practicing out loud, you don't understand the differences. Yes. You're exactly right. There are particular words that I cannot say when I am speaking in public. One of them is particularly the L's and the R's just (laughs) get really mixed up in my mouth. Uh, regularly, any word that ends like that, I simply can't say. So I take the opportunity to get rid of any word like that because I want my best chance for success when I'm going to be speaking in public. That's what that out loud practice does for you. It tells you the way your tongue and your brain work together or sometimes don't work together. But until you practice, you don't know. Well, on that point, this is the the perfect um, entree into talking about voice quality. 
what the components are that make someone's voice really pleasant to listen to. Do you have any thoughts on that to share? Sure. First of all, too many people walk into a video review room with me during a NIDA course and tell me that they don't like the sound of my of their voice. Oh, I hate my voice. Oh, I hate the way my voice sounds. And I think that's because the voice that we hear in our heads is completely different than the voice that we hear when we're recorded on videotape or audio tape or even on our phones. The the resonance is completely different inside our own head. So we just don't expect ourselves to always sound that way. You have to get past that, first of all. I don't know that I could even name a handful of people whose voices I have ever heard who I truly believe have a quote-unquote bad voice. Perhaps they have a quality that they can work on, but nobody's voice for the most part is bad. So first of all, we need to get rid of that. Secondly, I think that the best thing to do is think about the energy that your voice gives to your presentation. To me, your voice is the greatest tool that we have for changing the energy, changing the variation, because you can change the pitch, you can change the volume, you can change the rate, the speed, the tempo, you can change the intensity, you can bring it up, you can bring it down. All of those variations are what add energy to your presentation. Energy is simply variation. It's the difference between a static drum beat and a drum beat that has some changes in it. So think about using your voice in varying ways. The more you practice, you're going to get tired of hearing me say that word. (laughs) The more you practice, the more comfortable you're going to get with your voice. Men, for the most part, do have a little easier time because their voices are naturally a little lower. So when they want to get a little bigger, a little more expressive, a little more emotive, and their voices get a little louder or a little higher, they're still in what to our ear is a comfortable, pleasing range. Women, because our voices are higher, we struggle when we get into those higher ranges sometimes. It's difficult for women's voices to get louder without also the pitch raising. And I don't know about you, but one of the worst comments or criticisms that I can hear is that I sound shrill. I hate that word. I know. (laughs) All women hate to be told (laughs) that we're shrill. So we want to avoid that at all costs. That's why women, I think, need to worry and think about using those lower tones, dropping the intensity. There was a television commercial when I was a child, and this was probably, who I'm going to tell my age, back in the late 60s or mm-hmm. early 70s. And this gorgeous woman came out on the screen and walked right up to the camera and said, when you want to capture someone's attention, whisper. Aha. Uh-huh. Think about that. When you want to capture someone's attention, whisper. Now, I'm not advocating that lawyers start whispering in court. That's not going to work. But if you think about the difference in intensity when you whisper, that's something that women can use to their benefit so that they're never again told that they sound shrill. All right. That's a great tip. When you were a broadcast anchor, did you actually have a warm-up routine for your voice that you would follow before you would go on the air or would you just jump right in? Most of the preparation that I did before a newscast involved editing scripts so that they worked for my voice the way I spoke. So I sounded as natural as possible, getting rid of some of those words that are tongue twisters for me personally. And again, like I mentioned, writing for the ear instead of for the eye. So I spent more time editing the actual words. I was particularly careful 
See, I can't say particularly. <laughs> that just proved it right there. <laughs> I was especially, let's try that synonym. I was especially careful about words, especially foreign words and names and places that were going to be difficult to pronounce on the air. So my mantra was saying those words out loud over and over and over again, at least seven times Okay, when I was practicing. So for me, that would kind of cement it into my, my brain and my muscle memory. So seven times was the repeat that I needed to practice. I, I actually spend more time mentally and physically warming up now before I give a presentation than I did when I was in television. People don't realize it, but during a 30-minute newscast, you're actually speaking for maybe 10 minutes at the most because there are commercials. You go to the weather report. You go to the sports report. If you have a co-anchor, that person reads about half the scripts. There are news stories on tape that reporters have prepared. So an anchor is actually only speaking for maybe one or two minutes at a time. You want your voice to sound good, but you don't need to have it prepared for these long stretches. Now, the public speaking that I do is at least an hour, sometimes more. So the the voice gets stretched a little more than it used to. More than anything, I try to get up early, be prepared. I like to let my voice warm up naturally just by natural conversation, not do anything um, vocal exercise-wise. I drink hot tea every morning anyway, and I think that's good for my voice. So I do that. I drink water. I try not to eat very much. I try to eat lightly. Don't eat anything that I feel is going to coat my throat. But beyond that, I just try to think about my breathing and my posture and delivering to all of those eyes out there that are looking back at me. All right. Well, it sounds like now that you're you've transitioned into training, the quantity of speaking you do at any one time is closer to what a lawyer does in the courtroom or maybe in the course of deposition or in some other hearing. So it's interesting that um, you can really relate now to the, the very people you're teaching. Right. Oh, I have learned so much in talking to lawyers and asking questions of the other NIDA instructors that I have the opportunity to work with. I was talking to you briefly, Marcy, before we started this session about the fact that I really didn't think that this was something that I knew a lot about before I started these kinds of trainings. But I soon realized that the way that I trained young reporters and anchors who worked for me over the years is virtually the same thing that I say to young attorneys across the country and across the world, because the basic communication and presentation style skills are universal. They're the same whether you're in a newsroom, as I was, or in a boardroom, or in a courtroom. Good communication is good communication is good communication. So the fact that you were an anchor for so long makes you the perfect person to ask my next question. Typically, when we think of the role of a lawyer as a public speaker, we think of her at trial. She's standing up in the courtroom. But that's not reality in full. Um, it doesn't really capture all the opportunities for public speaking that a trial lawyer will have in her working life, because more often than not, she's not standing up. She'll be sitting down, for example, in a meeting or in a deposition, just as you were often at the anchor desk. So how does the physical practice of public speaking change when you're seated versus when you're standing up? Is the performance aspect of it different? I think there are a couple of things that you need to keep in mind. First of all, all of us have a tendency to slouch a little more when we're seated versus when we're standing. When I'm sitting in a chair, I like to be sure that I'm standing up very straight and tall, that I'm not leaning any part of my spine or my shoulders back 
against the back of the chair. That opens up my chest cavity, opens up my throat, gives me greater opportunities to take those good, full, deep breaths that we need. Think of your breath as the fuel behind your voice. You need as much fuel as you possibly can in order to push that sound out in a more pleasing quality. A couple of things that also will help regarding your posture, keeping your feet flat on the floor, adjusting your chair if you need to so that it's comfortable and you're not going to slouch, letting your hands just rest lightly on desk or table or whatever is in front of you. Try not to cross them because that's going to collapse your chest cavity a little bit and it's not going to be as easy for you to breathe and get those that good belly full of air that you need. Keep the space in front of you clear so that you're not tempted to fuss with your papers or twirl that pen in your hand or even worse, do the uh, clicking of the pen. Whenever I hear a pen click, it seems to make my eye twitch almost. (laughs) So try to avoid any of those things that are going to be distracting, not only to your audience, but sometimes to you. Great, great advice. I would be shifting around in my seat and putting my feet flat on the floor if only I thought I could do that without making a lot of noise on this recording. So (laughs) I'm noted for next time. (laughs) Exactly. Think about too that when you are seated, only about half of your body is showing. True. So a lot of the times we use our whole body to transition from one point to another when we're standing. When you're seated, really all you have is your face and your eyes and your hands. But you can't let your hands get too carried away when you're seated in particular, because that becomes distracting. All of a sudden, they can feel too big. So your hands need to be very, uh, they need to match. The gestures need to match what you're saying very specifically. Think about counting off on your fingers a list of facts that you have or a list of points that you want to make. Gestures that are really show and tell, just like going all the way back to the days of kindergarten. And then your face, your eyes, the way you're making contact with your eyes and your face with the judge and the jury is so important. Of course, when you're standing, but also when you're seated. Well, all of this talking about being seated and sitting at an anchor desk reminds me of one of my favorite movies of all time, Broadcast News. For people who haven't seen this movie, um, it came out in 1987, and it's all about the interplay and the conflict between reportage and entertainment, authenticity and acting. And they're very relevant issues even today, perhaps more so than ever. And it stars a young Holly Hunter, And she plays an evening news producer. If you love Holly Hunter in succession, you have got to see broadcast news, see where she got her start. And it also has Albert Brooks, who wrote the screenplay for the movie. And his character is this really intelligent field reporter. And then the the last main character is played by William Hurt, who is this pretty boy anchor. He's got this terrific delivery, great presence on TV, but not a whole lot of intellectual depth. And so (laughs) that was polite. Yes. (laughs) So I saw that movie when it came out. And there's a scene that I have never forgotten in which William Hurt is giving Albert Brooks some advice, some some suggestions about how to sit at the anchor desk, which he's never done before, because he's always reported from the field. And one of those tips is that you've got to sit on the back hem of your jacket. You just tuck it right under your tuchus so that it stays really crisp and looks nice and it doesn't creep up your neck. Is that a legitimate trick? Is that what anchors really do? (laughs) You are not the first person to ask me that, Marcy. (laughs) Uh, Actually, it does work. The funny thing is, I was already in broadcasting by 1987 when that movie came out. But I think that all of us learned that trick 
from William Hurt in broadcast news. I don't know that we knew that beforehand. So sometime if I ever get the opportunity to meet William Hurt, I'm going to ask him where the scriptwriters came up with that. But yes, it is a legitimate trick. So the next time you are on camera speaking, then give that a try. <laughs> All right, will do. Do you have any other little quick and dirty tricks like that for looking sharp while you're sitting down? Sure. More than anything, whether you're seated or standing, wear clothes that fit properly so that you don't fuss with them. Anything that feels uncomfortable, you're going to have a tendency to shift around in, and that's going to make you look like you're nervous and not as confident as you want to be. Get rid of anything that you might be tempted to mess with. I never wear a bracelet or a scarf or a a long necklace that dangles and is heavy because if it's not in the right place or it starts to move around as I move around the room, then I'm going to want to fuss with it. And anything that you're doing like that is going to be distracting. More than anything, minimize distractions. I think that's the key is getting rid of anything that is going to take the eye and ear of your listener, of your audience away from your actual message. So distractions, get rid of them. Sometimes I see people who actually have to take their wedding rings off because they have a tendency to put their hands together and twist their ring around. I'm not telling you that you have to take your wedding ring off when you stand up to speak in front of people. But if it's a habit that you have, you need to think about that because people's eyes are going to be drawn to that motion. There's something called the hierarchy of attention that you might be familiar with, Marcy, because I know you love communication theories. The hierarchy of communication says that actions are the number one thing that get people's attention. So if I'm standing in front of you twisting my wedding ring, all of a sudden your eye is going to be drawn to that and away from what hopefully are really good words that are coming out of my mouth. Yeah, that is really a a great point to make. Last year, you contributed to Anita White paper that's all about communication, and you introduced something called the three C's. And I think that probably has some overlap with what you're talking about. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by the three C's? We have a tendency to speak in jargon in whatever industry or profession we're in. There's broadcast jargon that other broadcasters would know exactly what I was saying if I used these particular words or terms, but people outside of broadcasting might not understand. It's the same way in the legal world. I always laugh and say that nobody in a courtroom ever actually talks about getting out of a car. They always exit the vehicle. But that's not the way we talk. Right, it's not. My husband never comes home and says, dear, would you like to go to the movie prior to dinner or subsequent to dinner? He says before or after. Yet in the courtroom, you hear words like prior and subsequent. That is what I consider to be legal jargon. Get rid of all of those things. Simplify, simplify, simplify. So clear is the first C. Concise is number two. And just like in your notes, when we were talking about less is more, less is more when it comes to speaking in public and and delivering an oral presentation of any kind. I don't know about you, but I want to give myself the greatest chance for success possible. Yes. So when I'm editing myself, I want to use the simplest words. I want to use as few words as possible in order to make my point and deliver my message. Because if I'm actually using fewer words and fewer syllables, I'm less likely to make a mistake. Yes. It's as simple as that. I'm going to have enough breath to deliver them. I'm going to have more opportunities to fine tune with the way I use my voice, the way I use gestures, the way I'm using my body in the courtroom or in the presentation. So 
concise, 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 edit yourself. Get rid of any words that you don't absolutely need. If you are familiar with active voice versus passive voice, you always want to write and deliver presentations in the active voice as much as possible. It's going to make your words punchier. It's going to make them stronger. It's going to make them more declarative and more persuasive, which after all, attorneys want to be as persuasive as possible. The last C stands for conversational. And this comes from some great advice that I got from one of my broadcast professors when I was in college. And he said, speak as if you're talking to your best friend, but take out the slang and the swear words. (laughs) That's great advice. It really is. But I don't know that we all think about that. Sometimes we get too caught up in the use of these big words, but studies have shown that big words and a lot of them don't necessarily make us sound smarter. It's really the emphasis on the words and the expression that you use to deliver them that makes you sound more intelligent and more credible. Studies actually have shown that. So if it's good enough for these people who have done a lot of research on communication, I think it's good enough for me. So the three C's, clear, concise, conversational. All right. My next question then is about eye contact and the best ways to make it with a group of people, whether it's a jury or maybe a group you're presenting to. How do you know whom to be looking at and how long to look at them without making them uncomfortable? And how do you look away? Do you do a a big gesture as a look away or do you simply move to the next person in line? It just is... um, It's hard not to feel kind of contrived, no matter what I have done with eye contact. So I would love to hear some advice from you on that. I think that the first message that I got about eye contact was probably in seventh grade speech class. And at that time, all I really got out of it was I thought that you just kind of looked back and forth around the room like a lawn sprinkler. But believe me, That is not eye contact. (laughs) Eye contact is really making contact with somebody's eyes, really touching that person's eyes with your own. I try to use that eye contact, especially at the beginning of a presentation, as a way to give myself some confidence. I automatically seek out people who look friendly or look engaged. Maybe they're smiling at me. Maybe they're nodding their head. Because at the beginning, when I'm a little nervous, that adrenaline rush is making me feel a little uncomfortable. I like to get that little boost of confidence from those people. So those are the people I'm going to seek out first. And once I get that little smile or little not of acknowledgement, then I'm going to move on to other people around the room. As I start to build my own confidence and I start to really warm up into the presentation, then I start to seek out people who maybe aren't quite with me yet. I'll look for people who aren't paying as much attention as I would like for them to Maybe they look a little dubious or a little skeptical about whatever I'm saying. Then I zero in on them and just really talk to them directly in a a pleasant way, not staring or glaring at them, but just really try to engage them. I try to hold that eye contact until I get that acknowledgement, that nod or that slight smile. Maybe they even look down and and take a note. Then I'm free to move on to the next person. So it sounds like you are not using any internal cues, but you really rely on the other person to signal when you can move on to establishing eye contact with somebody else. I do, because I think it's important for us to realize that it's all about how the other person is reacting. Okay. It's not how I, as the speaker, want to feel comfortable. 
I want to be sure that I'm engaging them. That's great advice. Step outside of yourself and think about the other person. Right. Right. And be sure that you're just not going down the row, (laughs) you know, mix it up around the room. Okay. What role do you think emotion plays in public speaking? Aristotle first talked about it centuries ago, and I don't think that we have changed much from his ideas about using emotion in speaking. So I think it's critical, especially when we're trying to persuade in the courtroom. You have to, first of all, believe in what you're saying. And if you don't believe in your case, you don't believe in your argument, you don't believe in your topic, I don't think you're going to be able to persuade anybody else to believe in it. So you have to have that that core value that that you really believe. You have to advocate with passion and compassion. Now, I'm not saying that you should be overly dramatic because that's probably not going to be comfortable. It's probably not going to be natural. More than anything, I think that judges and jurors can tell when you're fake. If you are trying to act as if you are something that you're not, it's going to be very easy to spot. It's going to be very visible. Jurors are pretty savvy people. They are not going to necessarily buy into something that they feel is false. So use the emotion that you naturally have for your case and for your argument, but use your voice then, use your gestures, use the way you move in the courtroom to add the energy. That energy and that variation and those changes are where you add interest, where you add emotion, where you add passion, where you add compassion. So one emotion that I want to ask you about then is a negative emotion. It's anxiety. And it's something that we've all been embarrassed to experience at some point in our lives. And so I'll preface this again with broadcast news. Albert Brooks, the the field reporter, finally gets his one shot at anchoring the evening news. And it's a task that he's really not trained for. And so almost as soon as the broadcast begins, his nerves get the better of him. And he's drenched in flop sweat. And he is keenly aware of how, how bad he looks. And it just makes him more nervous, which makes him more sweaty which makes him even more nervous, which makes him even more sweaty. And he is trapped in this positive feedback loop between body and mind. And the only way that he can break out of it is when mercifully the news broadcast finally ends and he just wants to die. So the upshot is in this highly comedic, well-played scene is that this character finds out the hard way that there's actually a lot more to anchoring than just sitting on the hem of his jacket while he reads off a teleprompter. And so, like I said, in one way or another, throughout our lives, we have all been there and we don't want to go back to that awful kind of feedback loop of anxiety and nervousness. But if we do end up there, Carol, if we flub up and we know it, and even worse, our audience knows it, how do we recover in the moment? First of all, Marcy, thank you very much for not asking me to describe the most horrifying moment that I ever had on broadcast television during a a newscast. I really appreciate that. Maybe that's something that we could talk about when the recording session is over. Idea is it really is going to happen to all of us. We're hopefully not going to have anything quite as dramatic as Albert Brooks moments in broadcast news, but you're going to have to cough. You're going to have to sneeze. You're going to just lose your mind, it feels like, in the middle of your presentation or your argument. And you have to not worry so much about that happening, but figure out how you continue on. So simply stop. Say, excuse me, let me try that again. 
and then pause and then go back to it. I think that honesty in these situations is the best policy. I think that's very forgivable. I think it's very human. And it cuts it off without prolonging it. If you try to just work through it and keep going and going and going without pausing, that snowball can sometimes become an avalanche. And it's a lot easier to stop the snowball when it's rolling down the hill than stop the avalanche once it's already crashed to the bottom and taken out half a forest of trees with it. So (laughs) stop and pause. Sometimes I do a little trick where maybe I just have to clear my throat slightly, but maybe more than having to clear my throat, I just need to press the reset button. I finish my sentence, finish my thought, then excuse myself, turn away from your audience. I think that's the key because you need to turn away from those eyes that are staring back at you in order to really reset yourself, clear your throat, cough, take a sip of water. All it takes is a moment. Then come back to your speaking position, lift your head, establish eye contact with the judge, the jury, whomever you're speaking to, and start over again. You don't have to give a lot of explanation. You don't have to prolong the agony. (laughs) Just simply realize that you are in the same position that every other speaker has been in. Acknowledge it and move on. All right. Well, now the trick is just to remember it in the moment. (laughs) Oh, well, that's true. And again, I promised that I was going to use the word practice a lot. So practicing is always going to help. So the next thing that I would like to talk to you about needs just a little bit of explanation beforehand to set the scene. It's all about communication in the context of culture and its cues. And so where this is coming from is based on a book that I read in college in anthropology class called Beyond Culture. It was written in 1976 by an anthropologist by the name of Edward T. Hall, and it's considered a landmark exploration of how language, history, and customs, things which are pretty unconscious from within a culture, but which can be utterly mind-boggling and confusing when viewed from outside it, and how those things all impact effective communication in cross-cultural relationships. So Hall introduced this idea that cultures are either high context or low context. And here, as it's being used, context relates to how explicit your verbal communication is. As in, do you need a lot of unspoken context in order to understand and communicate effectively? So, for example, France is a really high-context culture. It has lots of customs around interactions that date back to the time of the Sun King, Louis XIV, whose royal court introduced all of these social rules and etiquette and different behaviors that have trickled down throughout French society and have become so internalized over the centuries that they're they're just part of the French DNA. And there are lots of high context cultures besides France. There's Japan and China, India, Pakistan, you know, we can just say Asia and the Middle East and Africa, Latin America, very regional. So there's a formality to these cultures that you can't necessarily put your finger on. You don't know what you've done wrong when you've done something, but you just know that you did something. You can feel the effect of it, but without knowing the cause. So on the other hand, here in the United States, we are low context. And aside from certain regional differences in uh, Pacific Islanders of Hawaii, for example, and in Native American communities, our communication tends to be quite explicit. We just come right out and we say it. And to some other cultures, that is uh, indelicate. But in Canada, Ireland, Germany, Scandinavia, and other parts of Europe, that's just how it's done. 
So first of all, everybody, thank you for listening to my TED Talk. I'm finally getting to my question for you, which is in recent years, you have traveled to Northern Ireland and Tanzania and Myanmar with NIDA to give trainings on presentation skills to program attendees who are at some of these international public service programs. So I wonder how the idea of this high context versus low context culture plays out when you are training lawyers in other countries. First of all, whenever I'm asked to teach outside the United States, the first thing that I do is research those cultures and customs and etiquette. Most important, I don't want to do or say anything that is going to offend in any way. I also want to try to find out as much about their legal system and their court customs and the court etiquette, the way they work inside the courtroom and how that differs from ours. I'm used to our system, but our system is not the same as everybody else's. The jury system and the use of jurors is the the most important difference. So I don't want to suggest anything to a group of international participants that doesn't make sense for them or even worse, that would not even be permitted in their courtroom. Then I edit and revise my presentation so that I take out any purely American references and try to add references that they can relate to. For instance, talk about cricket instead of baseball. <laughs> Great. Simple things like that. Yeah. When I'm in their country and the broadcaster is coming out in me now, when I'm in their country, I try to watch their news broadcasts and I try to read their newspapers if I can find anything in the English language, because I want to pick up on current events that are going to be relatable so that I can add something topical into my presentations. I want to do everything that I can to relate to them and try to make them understand the concepts that might be foreign at first to them. But if I can find something that seems to work for both of us, that seems relatable, then I think they're going to, again, believe me a little better and are going to be willing to experiment with a concept that might be a little new for them. I have to tell you that when we were in Myanmar teaching recently, that was the first time that I ever had a translator. And that was an interesting experience because our translator asked that we only deliver one or two sentences at a time, then pause so that he could then deliver the translation. And it took a a moment to get used to that start and stop kind of speaking style. We're used to speaking for minutes, perhaps hours at a time without having to stop. So at first you had a tendency to lose your train of thought a little bit, but then once you got used to that and used to really simplifying your language to the extreme, that helped. I also found myself really concentrating on gestures and facial expressions so that I felt like I was almost doing some kind of universal sign language that would be really explicit to try to help not only the people understand, but also help the translator. And I spent a lot of time working with the translator in advance to find out this is a passage that I usually say, does that make sense? Is that a phrase that you would use in this country? Or do we need to find another way to explain that concept? Again, even though I tried to be very cognizant of it, there was some jargon and some American slang that I had to get rid of. So I had to kind of take my own advice about clear, concise, and conversational when I was working on this presentation. And the translator, to his amazing credit, was great about telling me if something simply wouldn't work. So that was great. I have never heard this concept before, Marcy, about high context versus low context. And I find it interesting. I think I'm going to try to read this book now. But I think we've become a much more global society. And I'm not certain that these differences, in my experience, I can only speak to my experiences, are quite as vast as 
they might have been when this book was written. So I think the world has changed quite a bit since 1976. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to read the book so I can more adequately answer your question next time. <laughs> yeah, I've wondered that too. In the past, it would have been so much more difficult to uh, work in the business sense with people who are overseas or to have friends overseas. And now with the advent of the internet and all the modes of communication that fosters, it seems like it's really made the world a much smaller place. So it would be very interesting to know if a lot of those concepts about high and low context are still really in place. Right. No matter where we go anymore, somebody has a cell phone. And in, in many cases, they also have Facebook on that cell phone. So social media, I think, has really made us more of a global society than we ever imagined. So I think that those, the, I hate to say homogenization, because I'm not sure that that's a positive word all the time. But I think that the way that we all interact through the World Wide Web and social media has perhaps cut down on some of these differences that you were talking about in this book. Yeah. So maybe instead of saying homogenization, we can say that we have found other ways to connect and figure out what we have in common rather than what our differences are. I agree. I hope. I hope that's true, don't you? I more than ever. <laughs> so we've reached the end and I always like to ask my signature fun sign off question. And that is how would you spend a million dollars, Carol? Oh, well, I think first of all, I would probably give to a couple of charities that I have worked with over the years that are, their missions are particularly near and dear to my heart. And then I would travel, travel, travel. As you can tell from our conversation, I love going to new places. And I've so appreciated learning from people in places like Northern Ireland and in Tanzania and in Myanmar. But there are places that I just haven't been to yet. So it would be wonderful to travel until the money ran out, Marcy. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds great. And that's a wrap. I would like to thank our guest, Carol Sowers, for making time to be here with us today, especially as you're in the midst of moving out of state, which is within the next couple of weeks, right? Right. Come visit me in New York. Uh, it's a date. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you to everyone for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to check the show notes for information and links that we discussed in this episode. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to May the Record Reflect wherever you happen to tune into podcasts. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. <laughs>